Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. Happy New Year, buddy. Yeah, to you too, Faisal. Uh, how was the, uh, the, the the holiday season for yeah, you? It was good. Um, you know, we had a chance to get to see Maddie's family in Toronto, although uh, the airlines canceled the flight on us yet again. Last year, we couldn't make it there because we got canceled twice. This year, we got canceled on the way back and had to make alternate arrangements. So there's still some disruption there. But having said that, it just extended the day uh, to see some additional friends. So it was all right. 2023 was a year of the family for me. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough to spend some time uh, with my wife's family, went away. And then during the Christmas break, went away with my, my family and my father. Those who have been listening to our show for a while know that my father is going through some challenging times with dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So to spend that time. I think one thing I've learned... Um, this year is a damn i have too many family members uh b um there are points in time where memories and experiences are worth the cost when you travel during the christmas time you are paying out of the yin yang mm-hmm. but if you only have a limited time to enjoy or have those you memories bet. you bet so sometimes it's worth it and so in 2024 i think one thing that people should be focusing on is, is it worth the value? Is it worth the expense? Is it worth the risk? Is it, is it worth it? Right. And I think that's a good, good set of tone because this year, the markets haven't been so friendly with us right out of the gates. Yep. Santa Claus rally kind of flopped because it's usually the first few days of January that the yep. full rally is included. And it flopped uh, in, the, in the first few days of the trading market for this for this calendar year. Um, and we've got some economic numbers that have come in with jobs and so forth. Give me your thoughts of what you see so far happening uh, in the markets. Um, I don't put a lot of stock in the first uh, in the first week or so. There's likely some repositioning going on and so on and so forth. So let's just take that out because there are some things that we'll talk about later to worry about in 2024. But, you know, it's, um, it's, there's a continuation trade happening here, without a doubt. Um, the, the great debate still continues about, have the central banks raised rates enough or too much? Is inflation moving materially down? Um, and what will be the next set of monetary policies on top of everything else that we have to worry about? And there's lots to worry about in 2024. So <clears throat> I'm not going to put a lot of stock in, in uh, the first week. We're going to let people reposition, do what they need to do after they get back, and we'll see how that looks. But we can't take our eye off the inflation ball and the monetary policy ball. I love January because this is kind of like the beginning of any major sporting uh, event that's happening. Let's take uh, before the NHL starts, and you have a whole bunch of people saying, who's going to win the Stanley Cup? Mm -hmm. Or take the NFL as we're heading into, into the Super Bowl. They've already figured out who's going to win the Super Bowl, apparently. And, of course, Vegas has their bets. Yep. But people have already said, oh, yeah, it's this, this team or that team. Right. They're making their calls well in advance of knowing the full facts. Right. And here we are in January, first few days not looking so good from what we were hoping for, considering December was a really good month. Yep. Um, and you're going to hear a lot more, we're in trouble, it's not going to be that great, we've borrowed this year's returns from last year, and everybody who's talking about how bad 2023 was going to be got it wrong. Right. And the short sellers, who were the guys who bet against the market, got creamed last got, year. Got decimated. Yeah. 
Um, and, and what people didn't take into account is that there are more than one way that things can happen. It could be your your own thesis. We call it the base case. Yeah. But you have to be humble enough to know you can be wrong in two other directions. It could be better or worse than what you expected. Yeah. So when I start seeing, here's our 2024 outlook and what we think is going to happen, rarely amongst all the major analysts do they talk about base case, worst case, best case scenarios. They just come out with their case. Well, they're often extreme, right? They're trying to get attention. So you it, often, It's marketing. Yeah, you often get the extremes. Yeah, it's, it's attention getting. Yeah. You're right. And I think, so you're going to see more and more of that. And I think what people have to understand is that what's happening today um, is not going to be the, the barometer for the entire year. There's a lot happening, and we're going to talk about that um, uh, politically, geopolitically, economically, company by company, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And I think this year, for those people who are transitioning to or living in retirement, need to look at the data and start to decide, are you a trader or are you an investor? Right. Or are you just a saver? So we talk about structure and discipline often. Now we're talking about strategy, make a decision on what, what you are, and then the discipline that you're going to deploy. Correct. You, so we've talked about structure and discipline a lot. Those are the superpowers uh, for, your, for, your for your investment portfolio. But if you don't know who you are, it's hard to have structure and discipline. Right. So I think there are three types of people who put money to work. There are savers. They just, here you go, and that's it. And there are investors who actually look at buying and in the stock market businesses. And there's traders who are just playing in the market based on trends and so forth. Decide what you are. What's the objective? Because in 2024, if you think you are just looking for a return and you don't know how you're going to do it, get ready for a big substantial loss. And so what is your approach? Are you a saver that you're just going to give your money and look for a rate of return and that's it? So you're passively looking at this? Are you an investor where you're looking at the qualities of what you're investing in? Or are you a trader where you're going to try to time things? And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of people lose or win based on do you know who you are yeah. and do you have structure and discipline. And I'm going to add to that, uh, to, to the complexity, the, you know, the what we're talking about this week, as you said, starting out, will be different than what we talk about in June. And it'll be different again than what we talk about in December. So uh, investors, I think, uh, have to be careful about trying to uh, to pick data points as GPS coordinates versus uh, looking at the sum total of data at the time as a compass, mm -hmm. right? So directionally, you know, you're asking yourself some big questions. What What is the direction of inflation from here forward? Okay, because you don't know what's going to happen on any given print. And directionally, if that's my call, what do, what do I think about what central banks will have to do as a result of that, right? Because you don't know what meeting they're going to say what on. And I think people get caught up and this is the volatility the emotional volatility reaction right mm -hmm. when something happens in the market it's oh that day 
means something more than that day. And you and I both know there's a 50-50 chance the market on any given day is going to go up or go down. Yeah. It tells you nothing, right? And so this idea that people stick to on GPS, this is the precise place I have to be at this moment in time, can often feed into that, that paranoia, that fear that leads to bad decision making. Directionally, who are you and directionally where are you going with this money? What is it designed to do? And guess what? You're going to do okay. You're going to do okay. Yeah. I think. I think if you have that structure in place, um, you're going to ha you're going to be okay, provided you know who you are. When you start to time, and here, here let me back up. There, there are there are people who invest with portfolio managers or mutual fund managers, and they they time the manager right. who's investing right. in the market based on a whole bunch of factors. Are you? Is your job to time the manager, or is your job to work with a manager. Right. And I think that's where we have to take a look at this and see where we're headed. All the information we've got so far, job numbers came out on Friday, both in Canada and the United States. Um, another data point, that data point to me, in my view, says that the US is still looking pretty good from a jobs perspective. Um, on, the, on the Canadian side, not as strong. And that kind of changes with this one data point along with the ones before that, that I think, and we've had other economists on our show saying that Canada will probably cut it straight before the United States will. Yeah, so and again, you're gonna, to, you're gonna have to directionally decide that. It was Friday was an interesting example uh, because you had the, the two job print, the initial reaction was, uh, it was bond yields higher, stock markets lower. Uh, you know, that, that reversed in the first half an hour of trading. It was interesting to see. That's always the first two hours of trading yep. that the, the market has to debate that. <clears throat> but then you got a second data point out uh, on the ISM services sector stuff in the United States that indicated a pullback, which is more future, uh, future gazing than the labor data, which is, which is backward gazing, on employment in the services sector. And that reversed the market. So again, using these data points as a GPS coordinate, really, really crazy because within literally 30 minutes, a different data point can come out, okay, that the market then anchors to. So you got to get directionally where, you know, where you're headed. Listen, we finished out uh, last year, we're getting into, uh, into tax season, people have to prepare their taxes. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to review what people should be aware of, not just what's, uh, what's here now, but perhaps what's coming as well. And, and there's no one better than having our reoccurring guest, Jamie Golenbeck, Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC, joining us. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. So we, we are entering now into a new year. There has been some changes. Um, of course, the one that gets the headline for most Canadians is the increase in potential CPP for some Canadians. That's a, that's a given. We've heard about that already. A lot of press and attention on social media and on conventional media. But let's talk about the other things. What should people be aware of from a tax perspective on changes in 2024? Okay, well, there's, there's not a lot of changes uh, that are new for this year. There's a few sort of things that might affect you depending on your personal situation. So, you know, for very high income individuals, of course, we have the looming alternative minimum tax changes, which are set to come into place as of Jan 1st, 2024. And this really only applies to people in the very high tax bracket. Your, your exemption for minimum tax is 173,000. So, you know, unless listeners make over 173, they really don't have to worry about this. But for high income individuals, um, there is a proposal. Again, it's still draft legislation, but it's supposed to be effective as of 
January the 1st, and we're still waiting on an update on that. Parliament doesn't resume until the end of January. But uh, in theory, um, this could be a concern. So all I would say is, we've talked about this before, is that if you're in the very high bracket and you've got, you know, I would call um, specialized items. And what I mean by that is tax preferred items, things like capital gains, which are only 50% taxable, eligible dividends that get the benefit of dividend tax credit, losses carried forward from a prior year, large tax deductions, you know, interest expense, things like that, um, charitable donations, things like that, that are significant. Um, you may want to speak to your accountant. You may want to speak to your tax professional now at the beginning of the year, just to see if there's things that you could be doing through the rest of 2024 to try to mitigate the potential for AMT. Because there are strategies. I mean, things like taking extra income, making extra RSP or RIF withdrawals, things like that, that could actually, depending on your personal situation, eliminate the AMT. So that's kind of one area, again, very narrow. And then the only other thing I think and think, think of that's relatively new, it's only a few months old now, of course, is the first home savings account. Now, many listeners may already own their first home, but we're now finding that the FHSA is a great way for parents and for grandparents to do some advanced intergenerational gifting. What I mean by that is the opportunity to gift each child or grandchild over the age of 18, $8,000 a year to allow them to start saving for their first home. Now remember, you can't open up an FHSA for them, but if you give them 8,000, they open up their own FHSA, they put the money in there, it grows completely tax-free. And if they're low income, they don't actually have to claim the tax deduction right now. They can actually save that for a future year where they're in a higher tax bracket. And as long as they buy their first home or condo, Within 15 years, the entire balance of the first home savings account, which could be up to $40,000 of contributions, plus the, all the income and the growth over 15 years can be withdrawn completely tax-free. And the best news is there's no downside because at the end of the day, if in 15 years you don't buy a home, you could take the entire amount out and pay tax if you want, or you can move the entire amount into an RSP or RIF and you don't even have to have the contribution room. So I think... Those are kind of the two new things, I think, for 2024. The few very minor things in terms of trust reporting and, and um, you know, the, the brackets have been indexed to inflation. But uh, we don't see anything major sort of uh, that, I, that, I, uh, that I've come across our radar in the last few weeks. I think the FHSA, First Home Savings Account, is something that needs to be looked at by everyone. Uh, we know in the last couple of years, let's go through the entire mm. pandemic as well, more and more parents, as they went through retirement, were trying to support their children with purchasing a home or helping their grandchildren, as, as Jimmy was talking about. And I think understanding that this is a vehicle, a program that it, I call it a gimme. It's not very often that the government gives us a right. gimme yep. where you can just actually put money aside and you can gift money. It's in their name. And I literally did this on Friday yep. for my 18-year-old daughter. Yep. She turned 18 this week. Yep. And I literally got that set up for her right away, knowing that this is going to help her. And she's in First University. And based on what she wants to do for a living, um, it's going to be about 10, 10 years before she actually gets uh, employment income that can that can be worthwhile saving. Right. So we've got lots of time now to let the markets grow, let the savings happen, yep. uh, let the deduction happen for, for her. I think this is huge. I was trying to convince my dad to throw some money in, but he's cheap sometimes, <laughs> so he's not doing that. But, but that being said, those, Jamie has a good point for everybody. Make sure you take a look at this, not just if you're, if you're, 
if you've got children or grandchildren who are looking, but this is a good opportunity to transition. You did mention though, Jamie, about some uh, indexing of the of the, the brackets. I think that's an opportunity for those who are looking at withdrawing from their RSPs or RIF. They can withdraw a bit more now and still pay the same amount of tax they would have last year. Um, beyond just the withdrawal of an RSP, the indexation of brackets, is there any other benefit to, to Canadians, especially those who are transitioning to or living in retirement that, that they should be aware of? Well, of course, the big one that I'm sure you're hinting at is, of course, the new tax-free savings account room, because starting on Jan 1st, 2024, we now have $7,000. So because of the inflation, we had the inflationary increase, that also affects the amount that we can contribute to a tax-free savings account. So especially for retirees that are finished contributing to their RSPs, and now even RIF withdrawals over 71, you now have this additional opportunity to take that money out of the RSP or RIF. If you don't need it and you don't spend it, why not then put it right back into a tax-free savings account? There's no age limit with a TFSA. And this year you can put in another $7,000 per person. So that's $14,000 per couple. So I think that's really important. And that's another advantage of, of course, having the numbers indexed to inflation. We have a couple minutes before we yeah. go to commercial break. Um, you had you had wanted a question for just a, just a quick one. Uh, let's maybe remind everyone. So people are now going to be preparing their taxes for 2023. Jamie, just we've got two minutes left. Quick uh, quick comment on what people should remember, be thinking about major mistakes that are made for filing your taxes for 2023. Yeah, look, I mean, there's not a lot of uh, stuff you can do at this point. I mean, the only thing you can still do is make an RSP contribution. You can't make any more charitable donations. You can't sell any stocks. You can't do tax loss selling because you know anything we're doing now is going to be for 2024. So really, when you're filing your return, you're being retroactive. So you know the only things that really come up on the return, of course, is you know pooling medical expenses, putting them on the lower income taxpayer. That's an easy one, right? Uh, making that RSP contribution within the February 29th 60-day deadline. Of course, that's an easy one. That will save you taxes for last year. And the other big one that just came up with a client yesterday, of course, is pension splitting, the opportunity to uh, split half your pension income. That includes RIF withdrawals, by the way, once you're over 65. And that's an election that you file every year with your tax return. So again, these are the kind of things that you want to be thinking about. But I mean, I think the message I would say is that now is the time not to think about last year. Let's think about this year. What can we be doing starting in January, whether it's being strategic on charitable giving, using donor advised funds, donating in kind to charity? Maybe we want to reduce taxes for the rest of the year by applying for a reduction of tax at source. Now is the time. Let's focus on 2024. 2023 is already behind us. The real tax planning for 2024 begins now. And I think that's very <clears throat> Canadian of us. We always do things at the last minute. So yeah. when it comes time for tax uh, filing, people think that's the tax planning time. It's too right. late. Right. We're looking in the rearview mirror now. And so right now we're at the we're at the at the beginning of the year. What do we do going forward? Let, let's break it down into areas that are sizable bites for people to look at. Let's start off with investors. What they can do. We call, talked about the 3D process, deduct, divide, defer. What are ways that we can do from an investor perspective as you transition to retirement or living in retirement, that perspective, and then okay. some estate planning or tax strategy planning for, for estates on, as a sort th of three parts. Sure. So, Jamie, let's kick it right off. Let's go to investors, strategy planning for 2024 uh, from an investor perspective. What should we be preparing or planning for? 
the first thing to do is really, of course, sit down with your portfolio, with your advisors and, uh, you know, look at your portfolio. Are you being tax effective? You know, what are the types of income that you're earning? Are you earning fully taxable? Yeah, interest rates are high relatively. So you might be excited about that 5% GIC. But remember, that's fully taxable income. Talks about your full marginal rate, right? With Alberta, I think 48% is the top rate. Um, could you be doing something more tax efficient? Could you be earning capital gains from equities, from mutual funds that are only 50% taxable? It brings your top rate down to 24%. Could you be earning Canadian dividends from public companies, from mutual funds, things like that, and invest in Canadian public companies like banks and pipelines and things like that, that generate the dividend tax credit? So we can be pretty efficient. You can even look even more sophisticated with something called return of capital, where you get cash flow that's not currently taxable, that ultimately reduces your cost base and gives you hopefully a later gain, bigger gain uh, when you sell. So number one, I would focus on tax efficiency. Number two, I would look at, you know, obviously making sure you're maximizing all of your registered plans. So topping up that RSP, not just for last year, you have till February 29th to make a deductible contribution for 2023, but now we have 2024, right? We can actually make this year's contribution ahead of the game. In other words, once we know what last year's earned income is, we take 18% of last year's earned income, less any pension adjustment if you have a pension plan at work. And then that is the amount we can put in now for 2024. We've talked about tax-free savings accounts, another $7,000 this year. If you've got kids, we've talked about RESPs, Registered Education Savings Plans, putting in you know enough for every year to get the government grant, maybe going even beyond that. If there's someone in the family with a disability, Registered disability savings plans for you know tax deferred shelter uh, growth and things like that uh, you know grants and bonds and then of course you know the first home savings account that we've already discussed so lots of opportunities for tax sheltering um, and those are the things I would really focus on and then finally you know if you're going to be charitable 2024 set up a charitable budget for 2024 and then be strategic about that and say look if I'm going to give X amount to charity in 2024. Can I be tax efficient? Maybe I want to donate some appreciated securities uh, at the beginning of the year. Maybe I put that into something called a donor advised fund where I can actually get my receipt right away, uh, pay no capital gains tax on the increase in value of those stocks or mutual funds. And then once it's in the donor advised fund, I can then allocate it this year, next year, for the rest of my lifetime or even my kids' lifetime to any of the 87,000 registered charities in Canada. The only minimal obligation is to distribute 5% a year. So lots of information, but again, speak to your advisor because there's so many things that we can be doing throughout the entire year to reduce taxes, especially on investment income. Jamie, we're sticking to the investment income. There are many business owners who, has, who have money in their corporation, either their operating company or their holding corporation. Let's make it simple and say they've got money in a, op, in a holding corporation. Uh, it's not getting mixed up with the, with the business itself. They've done some good planning there. Now comes the time for investing. You, we've got high interest rates. We still got eligible dividends. We got capital gains. You mentioned that about in a non-registered portfolio. How, business owners tend to look at things a little bit different when it comes to how they invest in their holding company generally speaking, how should they look at the type of investment income they're receiving? Because there might be a disadvantage in one area versus another from a type of income you receive when it comes to investing within your corporation. Now, I'm glad you brought that up. This is a very serious misunderstanding and very least understood area of tax. And that's because corporate tax rates are very different than personal tax rates. Corporate tax rates are a flat rate and it depends on the type of income. If you have operating income, that's one thing. 
But once you have investment income, you're looking at very high tax rates inside the corporation. And in fact, on the fully integrated basis, your tax rates could even be higher than you're paying personally. So I think it's very important to look at the different types of investment income inside your holding company. You know, stay away from things like, you know, fully taxable interest income. You know, I would say a special word of warning. People aren't really aware of this, but when it comes to things like foreign income, I'm thinking now of U.S. dividends. Speak to your tax advisor because U.S. dividends are very negatively treated because of the 15% withholding tax and refundable tax system when they're earned corporately. And you could actually end up paying up well over 50% tax on a fully integrated basis, even though the top Alberta rate is only 48%. So you got to be very, very careful about the types of income earned there. And one of the great things that, depending on your personal tolerance, is, is life insurance. A lot of our clients now that are you know, using Holdco's are looking to buy some permanent whole life insurance owned by the corporation. Because the beauty of the whole life policy, of course, at the end of the day, is that the money gets invested on a tax-deferred basis. And on death, a tax-free death benefit gets paid to the corporation's capital dividend account and ultimately paid out on death as a tax-free capital dividend. So I'm not saying put all the money in the hold co into life insurance, but you know, 10%, 15%, you know, wherever you think right. Uh, it could could be the right number. And we look at it as an asset diversification, but also as a pure alternative asset class to fixed income, which is punitively taxed inside of a corporation. One of the biggest debates that we get, Jamie, is on drawing down from your RSPs or RIFs just to avoid or minimize the tax upon death. We have this conversation all the time with people calling us up saying, should I take more money out now? Or uh, because I know that I'm going to be at the highest tax bracket when I pass away uh, and all my money, my RSPs, my RIF will be ta fully taxable at that point in time. So my tax rate's lower now than potentially when I, when I pass sometime in the future. Um, when it comes down to drawing money out from a tax perspective, what are your thoughts? What should people consider? Well, my general advice is never take out more than you need or more than you have to, at least from a RIF and more you need from RSP or RIF um, in, in almost every scenario. And, and it really depends on how long you plan to live, right? So someone who is 71 uh, could very well live statistically, if they're in good health, another 17, 18 years, right? So is it worth prepaying tax now at age 71 uh, at a lower rate versus a higher rate on death in 17 years time? Because you're going to lose the tax deferred compounding on the tax that you're saying to the government at age 71. So our math says in almost every scenario, it does not make sense. Now, if you're gonna die sooner because you've got life health concerns, uh, you may not live much longer. Uh, you've got limited number of years until, or you're older, for example, and you are in relatively low bracket right now, then yeah, maybe it makes sense to take out. I would generally say, we wouldn't look at a strategy like this. I would say, unless your income from all sources is under, let's call it 50,000 a year. At 50,000 a year, you're in the lowest tax bracket. You know, maybe it makes sense to do some excess withdrawals from the RSP or RIF to bring your income right up to that $50,000, right? But again, there are other considerations, right? Uh, loss of government benefits, income tested benefits, the age credit, which is clawed back based on income, you know, quarterly HST, GST credits, things like that. You gotta be careful, right? So when you're, when you're creating excess income beyond what you have, you may lose other benefits, which means your marginal effective tax rate could actually be higher than you think. So my general rule of thumb is never take money out of your RSP or RIF early uh, because you'll end up paying more tax at the end of the day because you've lost the next 10 or 20 years of tax deferred compounding. That being said, if you have no other money in the world, 
One strategy obviously would be to take the money out and just put it into a TFSA because that allows you to get that same tax-free growth in the TFSA, take advantage of an easy, low tax rate environment. The problem is that if you take it out and don't have room in the TFSA, then yeah, you've taken it out at a lower rate, but now what do you do with it? You're going to invest it in a non-registered portfolio. You're going to pay full tax on that income, depending on the type of income. Yep. Never easy to figure things out right off the cuff. You definitely need advice uh, and strategy. So speak to your tax professional. And thank you once again for joining us, Jamie Golenbeck. My pleasure. Interesting show today. Of course, um, uh, taxes, uh, I think the thing that people can take away from this is taxes are an, a full year strategy. It happens all the time. Now, taxes are one of the things we have to worry about, but there's some things we can strategize about. But there's lots going on in the, in the markets geopolitically in an economies this year that we're going to have to keep our eye on the ball because there could be some stuff that gets a bit dicey and derails us here. Let's talk about some of those issues. So let's, let's use an analogy. So when I was on vacation, I was on the beach, my family was in the ocean yep. and I would start taking out my phone and I would have a view of the entire beach, my family in the water. I can see the whole landscape and then slowly I start to zone in and, and zoom into that just to my family itself. Okay, when you are looking at what's going to be happening and what to be concerned about in 2024, many Canadians will start off with their lens zoomed in locally and think that's going to be the biggest issues that's going to impact their investments or their financial portfolio. Right. And now when you say locally, do you mean provincially, municipally, or even nationally? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think that's the right answer. Yes. Right. Our taxes have gone up for our houses by 7% in the city of Calgary. Oh my God, the markets are going right. to, the markets don't care about Calgary. Right. Oh, Alberta and, and their issues, whatever it may be, talk about pension plan. The markets, the global economy doesn't give two you-know-whats about Alberta. Right. In fact, the markets don't even care about Canada. So start to zoom out on your lens. And let's look at some of the key things that actually can make issues or concerns, things that I'm thinking about, that I'm focusing on when I look at managing a global portfolio. Mm -hmm. I'm not just investing in Calgary. Right. I'm not just investing in Alberta or Canada. I'm global. I can go anywhere in the world. So let's start looking at some of the things that people need to be concerned about. First and foremost, I believe it's just over half of the world's population, 40 nations, are going to go through an election this calendar year. Right. So. Political risk. Get ready for some political risk. Right. Okay. One thing we are not fully convinced yet is how one of the biggest drivers of global economic growth, which is the American consumer, are they going to continue doing what they're doing by spending, or are they going to capitulate? Now, why is that important? Why, why is American consumer important? Because we talk, we get questions about this a lot. Correct. Okay, so largest economic <clears throat> superpower in the world yep. is the U.S. In the U.S. economy, almost two-thirds to three-quarters of the, of the economy is consumer-driven. Mm -hmm. So they have, they have a lot of play in this. They have a lot of play in this. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And consumers in general, in any developed uh, economy, Canada included, about three quarters, right? Two thirds to three quarters of the economy is driven by our spending. And if we look at the American consumer, they will dictate 
not only what's happening in the United States, but what the demand of imports and exports globally exactly. will be. Yep. You, you talk about oil. What about the U.S. consumer and driving? Right. All of these things can. Everything. It starts with the U.S. consumer. Their behavior will drive right. a lot. Yeah. So no matter what you're focused on. Okay. So will they capitulate or not? They've been strong uh, to this point. Uh, we'll have to wait and, and see, but you better keep your eye on the ball there. Who's the second largest economy? China. Okay. Should we focus on them? Because, you know, we said Canada, not as relevant globally. Right. China, number two. Even if you're not invested in China, why is China important? They are the biggest consumer of goods when it comes to raw goods. And they are the biggest exporter of goods when it comes to stuff that we buy. Yep. And they're a major influence in the region where it has more than, I believe, 55% of the global population. Right. So if you have that kind of influence, a little bit of attention should be paid to it. Well, and it affects Canada, right? So Canada as an exporter of things like oil or raw materials. Guess who the biggest consumer of raw materials and import of oil is? China has an influence on those prices. So why do we need to be concerned about China, even if we don't invest in China or go to China or travel? Because of that. What about Europe? Who's the biggest trading partner for the European Union? Yeah. China, right? So if you're invested globally and you're outside of, uh, uh, of North America, which is also influenced by China, you know, these are markets that are affected by how the Chinese economy is performing. So I think when you look at China and keep an eye on their housing issues, keep an eye on this housing, we'll call it a crisis for lack of a better word, but there's a lot of speculation, a lot of issues there. Just be prepared to understand what is happening in that country because as speculation bubbles can, can happen or if there's a major crash or a slowdown, we all know if your house price goes up in value, you have more confident, you'll spend more money right. no matter where you are in the world. The Chinese economy is no different. Right. If there's problems in their real estate world, there are going to be problems in their spending. It's going to be a big problem. So take a look at that. You and I debate about this a lot. Europe. Mm -hmm. Germany has had the worst performance amongst the, all the economies in 2023. Germany is the biggest influence in the Eurozone. Yep. Um, I'm not a big fan of Europe as a overall uh, economy, but they are, as the Eurozone, if you combine all the countries together, yeah. they are the number one economic superpower. They're That's bigger right. than the United States right. when they're working together. Right. And I say that again when they're working together. Right. And here comes the problem. I think that's where we're going to see supply chain issues. Germany's known for exports of their goods, such as vehicles. Yep. EVs have not been German-based. That's causing some problems in their economy for manufacturing, so on and so forth. Be prepared. Watch what's happening in Europe with a, a closer view of Germany, because they will have an influence on the entire Eurozone. Yeah, agreed. Um, interest rates in Japan, you know, they're trying to get out of the negative interest rate um, cycle they've been in for decades. Uh, well, their central bank manipulation of not just the bond markets, but also the stock markets, right? We've got to keep an eye on Japan. It's a large economy. It would be third relative, uh, third in, in line behind China at almost $5 trillion. When you look at what's happening, think about when you have negative interest rates and other countries have positive interest rates. You'll send your money, your, your currency, your domestic currency, and buy foreign bonds for a better interest rate. Right. So now you're selling your local currency to buy a foreign currency to buy a foreign bond. Okay. 
Now, if interest rates rise, you're going to repatriate that money. When you bring that money back into your country, you're selling foreign currency, buying domestic currency. Now you're going to you're going to not only impact your own. Keep in mind, Japan is one of the biggest creditors. Right. One of the biggest creditors in the world right. because of their negative interest rates. Right. As you repatriate money or currency back to domestic currency, you now start to put a little bit of a, a tremble, maybe even an earthquake, might even be a tsunami going around the currency market right. in other parts of the world. It happens too. So be yeah. prepared to see what's happening uh, with uh, with uh, Japan. I think also India, Dave. Um, mm. They are now going to be looked as the growth engine of the world. China slowing down. India has had a great uh, a few years, their mm -hmm. growth rate. Again, they're going into an election, so we will see what happens there. But can they live up to the expectation that India is going to be the growth of all? So I think those areas, when you look at it, when the American consumer, the housing issues in China, see how Europe is, is performing and how they're laggard potentially, the negative rates to positive rates in Japan, and look at India. Notice I haven't mentioned Canada. Mm -hmm. And you know what? If you want to focus on Canada, you know where you worry about? Mexico. I've been pounding the table to look out for Mexico for a long time, so be prepared for that. Okay, let's wrap it up. Uh, we've got a seminar coming up here on Tuesday, January 23rd. Why don't you give us the deets? Yep, 7 p.m. The deets, that was pretty good. <laughs> Tuesday, January 23rd, 7 p.m. at Country Hills Golf Club. You do need to register for this. So go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. On behalf of Faisal and myself, uh, thank you for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on QR Calgary. We'll talk to you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.